You're listening to Living Medicine, a special podcast series from the Irish Medical Organisation, which explores the lives and careers of senior figures in the medical profession. My name is Priscilla Lynch, and my guest in this episode is Longford GP and IMO President, Dr. Podrick McGarry. Podrick, you've been a GP for quite some time in Longford. Can you tell us a bit about how you came into general practice and what your patient population is like? I suppose I came into general practice. I qualified in college surgeons, chose GP as my career. I went back to Longford where my father was working at the time. Unfortunately, he died quite suddenly when I had come back. So I joined and worked with Niall Walsh for a number of years. And in approximately 1990, I got a GMS list of my own. I suppose at that time, you know, single-handed general practice was the norm as such at that time. You might have thought, you, you know, would you have gone into to group practice? But it wasn't really the done thing. Maybe it was in urban cities, but certainly not down the country. So I, I was a single-handed general practitioner, and I remain so for, I suppose, up till now. Myself and another, a number of other GPs, Dr Mel Gorman and Kevin Flanagan, we came together as single-handed general practitioners, but under the one medical centre. We, we were actually generating our own, or creating our own primary care centre. And we opened that in 2006, and it is still going to this day. It's very successful. We have, I suppose, the best of both worlds. You are able to retain your own individuality, but you have cross-cover and collegiality, and it, it works very well. And do you feel that that really benefited your working practice and that you had more time off, given that the contract really, I suppose, is 265 days a year, particularly if you're a rural single-handed GP? Interestingly, it didn't make any more time off. And I remember Kevin saying some years afterwards, we used to play golf on a Thursday. And many years after, he said, we haven't played golf for years. So I think, you know, I suppose work grew exponentially, possibly because of the centre itself rather than actually giving us time off. Maybe now we need to sort of throttle back a bit and look at that a bit better, get more life balance. In general practice, you treat patients from the cradle to the grave, and I think that's no more so than particularly in rural practice where you get to know your patients intimately over the years. Has that been a very rewarding career? Absolutely, and it's interesting, I suppose, I'm now... I'm in general practice for many years, oh, 30-odd years, and I'm now seeing the third generation... I'm seeing children, having children who I vaccinated. It is it's interesting to see it. And what's very, very interesting is to see the traits of generations coming through. I can see this. It's, it's quite remarkable at times, you know. In today's society, it's very popular, this notion that the best healthcare is delivered in these massive centres with lots of different specialties there and lots of different doctors. But recent research from the UK shows that being treated by the same GP over your lifetime actually leads to better outcomes and longer life expectancy. Has that been your experience? Absolutely the best. I think, you know, so one of the issues in relation to general practice, someone comes into you, you have an instant recollection of the past history. You know how they've responded to different situations in the past. If you haven't had the experience of that, if you had a number of people coming through on rotation and not having the experience of the patient in front of you and the trials and tribulations that they've had in the past, which is readily accessible, you don't have to necessarily go through notes. That's where the true benefit of the continuity of care comes in. And I think that's why, as you said there, you know, individual care with the IGP is what counts best for patients. 
And obviously, as a rural practitioner, home visits would have been part of your career as well. So has there been any particular memorable home visits or is it something that you feel that it's in danger now? But is it something that should continue? Certainly when I started off, home visits were much more the norm at that stage. And certainly when I started in Longford, I also covered a lot of South Leitrim area, which was very rural. And a lot of the patients there rarely went outside of their own small circles and house visits were absolutely the norm. And what you did come across in some of those areas was incredible deprivation and poverty, you know. I remember clearly a patient who had bad COPD, you know, she would require frequent visits. And I remember how inept I felt at times because she didn't have electricity and I had a nebulizer which was only on electricity. And I remember going to Fanning's in, at Fanning's in Grafton Street at the time, asking, you know, could I have a battery-operated nebul- neb- battery nebulizer? And they looked at me with two heads. What would you need that for? I said, well, you know, there are areas where there's no electricity, and certainly down in rural Ireland. And that was the norm at the time, you know. And the, and the, the deprivation in that was, was, was incredible. And in, you know, in that particular house, there would have been calves in the house. There would have been chickens walking across the table. That stands out amongst others. And long before there was formalised arrangements for GPs to deliver chronic care, I think that's a great example of you, you know, treating a chronic care patient in the community, someone with multi-comorbidities. So it's something that GPs have done from, from time immemorial. GPs have been doing chronic care, especially in the more rural areas, you know, for decades. And they've always done it. They haven't perhaps done it in the structured way that perhaps we're now looking forward to doing it. And certainly that was one of the issues which we'll talk about later as to how I felt that we needed to address that. But certainly GPs have been doing chronic care for decades and especially in rural areas where perhaps access to outpatients or hospitals just you know, is difficult. I mean, if you're in South Leitrim, your nearest hospital is 40, 50 miles away. So, you know, rather than put somebody on the road to a hospital, invariably you looked after their care probably a lot more than you might have if there was a hospital next door to you. And, you know, you, you, to that end, you, you did look after them uh, right up. And you, got, you, you brought them through the crisis. Care of patients was often a trial and error approach um, when you started medicine, especially in relation to chronic disease management. But there's a lot more protocols and guidelines and algorithms now. Has that changed practice a lot? I think it, I think it has as for the best. And I think a lot of credit has to go to the Irish College of General Practitioners for creating, you know, protocols, how to deal with patients. Because, And again, also the uh, CME, Continuous Medical Education, because when we were certainly started in general practice, there was no real CME and you were very much a lone shark as such. I think what has happened is that your, your continuous medical education updates you. It gives you a better opportunity to deal your patients on the spot. And it also built up that collegiality. So, yeah, I think it has been great helpful in that regard. The No Doctor, No Village campaign recently highlighted how there's a lack of new, younger GPs willing to work in rural practices around Ireland and also in deprived areas. But obviously this is there's a great need there for patients. So how did that impact you and your thoughts really on how we can encourage the next generation of GPs to come and work in situations like yours? I think the lack of GPs in rural area is quite a complex issue. I don't think it's just quite the one thing. But certainly, I think what highlighted most of all was the unviability of practice that, unfortunately, the FEMPI cuts put on it. And it probably brought it to the fore much more so than perhaps it might have. And certainly, younger GPs tended to 
want to gravitate towards more urban areas, which mitigated against rural practice. I think we need to address that. I do think that perhaps how that can be dealt with better would be better use of flexible contracts. We introduced, the IMO introduced flexible contracts a number of years ago through the Department of Health and HSE, which allows two or three GPs to come together and apply for one practice. So if perhaps you wanted to work, you know, a a 20-hour week or a 15-hour week and you could share it between two or three others and perhaps give you that flexibility. You could have continuity of care in a rural area but without committing the doctor themselves to a full-time time in that area. And I think that's one issue that hasn't really been used as much as it could. And I think there's a lot of people who probably would like that model. And I think hopefully now that with the restoration of FEMPI and introducing of chronic care that is now resourced, that it now might make it a more viable option for people. And, and, you know, people may take a second look at those type of practices. But it's a complex issue. It's not just a straightforward answer to that. A deal regarding the unwinding of FEMPI was recently announced by the government that was negotiated between yourselves, the IMO, and the HSE in the department over a long period of time. Can you tell us a bit about that process? Yes, (laughs) Yes, <laughs> it's gone over a long period of time. Um, as you know, actually, this whole thing started off with the IMO securing a framework agreement as a result of the settlement with the case against the Competition Authority. And that laid the uh, sort of the foundations for us entering into negotiations with the government. We had been blocked out for many, many years from negotiations because of their interpretation of competition law. And this framework agreement allowed us for once and for all get back into negotiations with the government. So I remember certainly when I took over chair in 2000, and I think it was 14, chronic disease management was also on our agenda. And I remember we made a presentation in Buswell's hotel a wet October evening. We presented what we felt was the the necessity to deal with chronic disease management. And that echoed with the HSE very much. So I remember a very senior member of the HSE coming up and says, we need to talk soon. And certainly the Taoiseach, current Taoiseach at the time, who was, or at the, at the moment, Leo Varadkar, who was health minister at the time, he came over at that and he was quite taken aback. He, he was supposed to come over literally just to open it up and go back for a division. And it was a fairly heavy night he was dragged out of there three hours later by his handlers as such. He, he understood what was going on there and he understood the necessity. But we weren't going to take chronic disease management on its own without the reversal of FEMP. It had to go hand in hand. HSE wanted that. So that was, I suppose, the tug forward and back between us wanting to have FEMP reversed but also get chronic disease management. So there was two forces there that were actually merging. And eventually, I think it came to pass that, yeah, they realised the need to do this. So we laid a lot of the foundations for the chronic disease programmes and the FEMP reversal in 2017. But unfortunately, the budget of 2017 just showed that there was no real resources there to do it. So we pulled out and said, look, you need to talk, you need to get serious about this. It's well versed elsewhere how we eventually came to, I suppose, August of 2018, when I think, in fairness to Minister Harris, I think he persuaded the government that, you know, this needs to be addressed 
and there was it was confirmed that there was an envelope of money to both reverse FEMPI and to develop chronic disease management. And from there, we started serious negotiations for about six to eight weeks just to see were they really serious. And certainly at that time, you could detect that there was a total sea change in approach. There was business to be done. Our initial six to eight weeks were to see whether there was grounds to continue. And we felt coming up to Christmas, yes, there was. So we restarted in January. And from January, I suppose, up until we completed it, late January to, I think it was whatever time in April, we had something like 54 working days and they were long working days. A lot of them went up to 10 o'clock at night and there were heavy negotiations and thankfully we have come up now with an agreement which hopefully will be accepted by GPs. On the ground, we've been going around at various meetings to date explaining the FEMPI restoration what that means, what the productivity means for that, or deal, uh, what the productivity issues, and the chronic disease management programmes. I'm very happy to say that they have been taken up enthusiastically by everybody to date with absolutely, you know, sh- they, they have questions about it. But as you know, our CEO, Susan Klein, is an extraordinary communicator and she has been able to explain to a T everything and to everybody's satisfaction. So... I'm hopeful that this will continue on. We've another few weeks of meetings and we will then be putting it to a ballot in May and hopefully we will be getting a positive outcome from that. And I think those that re- those restorations will do show that there is a viability there. Now, we're not finished. This is not the end of it. And we deliberately left it that it was not the end of it because, you know, if you give the government everything, they won't come back. We deliberately did not want to complete a contract in this regard because there just wasn't enough resources to do a complete contract. So there are other issues that we'll have to come back to. And I think in time, the end product will be a contract which hopefully will cover all of the issues that we need to cover and that there will be a matching resource to that. And I think when we get to that stage, and I think this is the first step of it, and I think it's a very positive step to it, the viability of general practice should you know should encourage people to come back especially the younger people they need to understand it they need to understand practice is viable and hopefully will become more so as we go forward were the fempi cuts the biggest challenge to general practice really in the last couple of decades absolutely i mean 38% and you know 38% against a fixed cost base that was the real killer. You know, you, you know, a lot of people say, well, you, you could, you, you could, you know, reduce your costs, you know, reduce uh, what you do. Well, you couldn't reduce what you do because what we did was pretty well, you know, static, in fact. It grew and grew. So, yeah, it left practices totally unviable. And unfortunately, a number of people left the country, possibly not from their own volition, but through necessity. They just were broke. And I think that was particularly true about some people who were encouraged, a bit like myself, to take, to, you know, to go and build primary care centres themselves. These were the entrepreneurial spirit, which other ministers, and I'm not going to go into that now, but encouraged, build them and we will support you. That support never came. And a lot of people then had built primary care centres, which unfortunately was to their detriment. And I think that mentally has put off an awful lot of people from trusting in the HSE and the department. You know, they offered, they offered support, but that was support. Not only did it not come, but the FEMPI cuts came. And that was a vital thing. And I think there will have to be, there will certainly need to be 
a rebuilding of trust. And, on, and the only way you're really going to rebuild, rebuild that trust is to show that you're actually, you're, you're, you're sincere about making it viable again. And I think we've come some way in that way. The government has long paid lip service to how important general practice is and how they want to put more resources into it, but they did the opposite really in recent years. So it's obviously hard for GPs to believe them. That has been probably one of the biggest challenges. Like, I know the IMO have been pillared for staying in negotiations with the government but you know you have to you have to keep in country you have to keep discussing it we were being pillaged to an extent by remaining in talks for so long with the government when there clearly wasn't any visible outcome and it was difficult I mean you could decide to walk away and just you know knock on and and rattle cages from outside but you know the only way you're going to actually get further is to build relationships and keep talking if you're not talking nothing's going to happen so that was the the role we the decision the strategy we we took and we did you know we have suffered badly in relation to that we have been criticized heavily but we had a very clear strategy how we're going to do it and i think thankfully the strategy that we did take has proven to be the correct one hopefully it will pay off You've been involved in medical politics for a long time. How did that come about? I, I suppose I got into medical politics by accident. Dr Niall Walsh, who unfortunately is deceased two years ago now, he was the uh, Midlands rep for quite a number of years and he just found that he wasn't able to continue it. He asked me, would I get involved? And I had no active role prior to that at all, although I was always a member. I've been a member since I was a student. So I did join the GP committee. I was elected on the GP committee a good number of years ago. And I suppose I sat and looked and see how things went, <laughs> became chair. And I just happened to become chair at a time when perhaps things were, were happening. And it was very, I was very, very fortunate in that regard. There's an awful lot of people who did become, who were chairs, put a huge amount of work in. And unfortunately, because they were blocked out, that, you know, there was no tangible benefit from it. I've been very lucky in that regard. So I've enjoyed it hugely. Yes, it's been a challenge, but, you know, it's, 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 you can either, you know, stand back and let things pass you by or get involved. Unfortunately, I'm not someone who could stand by. I'm either in or I'm out. And it's just, it's, given that I was in, I was in full time. You need a lot of patience, obviously, for the negotiations that you've been involved with. Um, there's, it's a very slow pace and that can be very frustrating. So what are the skills really that you need? You do need patience. And certainly I might not have that patience when I started off, but you learned. That's funny, an issue that people from outside may not understand at all. I think a lot of people feel you can just rock up, hammer on the table and say, I want gimme gimme. You know, that's that's just not how it works. It's painstakingly. It's like watching paint dry. It's hours and hours. In particular, I mean, you know, we spent over one particular issue in the negotiations. We spent five days talking about it. You know, something that some people say, well, you surely could sort that in half an hour. But no, you literally have to look at every dot, every and, every comma. And that's what takes a huge amount of time. And you have to read and read and read the documents over and over again. You're thinking, God, it's the same thing I'm reading 10 times. But that's what it takes. And you're either suited to that and have the stamina for it or you're not. But you do need to have patience and have to say we have been so, so fortunate in the secretaries we've had who've involved in us. Susan Klein, Val Moran and Tom Smith. I mean, they're experts in their field in that regard and 
thankfully, their expertise has now been shown. You were recently anointed as IMO president. That involves a lot of advocacy for both doctors and patients. So what are your plans for the year? Well, yeah, it's a different role. I mean, I suppose heretofore I've been the chair of GP and my emphasis has been purely on GP issues. I'm now going to have to broaden my horizons, get myself a lot more familiar with all the different disciplines and I am getting involved and I will certainly take the leads from the my lead from the different chairs in the different disciplines. It is a different role and certainly I've already found myself in that, advocating for consultants yesterday, which is something which I hadn't been used to, but uh, nonetheless is important because they have a huge role, an important role, and they're being treated very unfairly, especially the, the group who have been who have become consultants since 2012 with the 30% cut. I mean, that's just appalling. So, yeah, I'm quite comfortable in doing that, and I hopefully will continue in that vein. Um, uh, it's, I'll hopefully I'll grow into it. I'm going to certainly speak to all of the past presidents and get advice. They are hugely supportive and I think using the wisdom of the collective wisdom of some really, really good people, uh, hopefully it'll make my job that bit easier. What are the issues that currently concern you the most about the health service? I suppose the difficulty for patients in accessing services. That's just... And that puts a huge strain on you. You you know, when somebody comes in to you and you examine them and you do some bloods and you come back with a conclusion, God, this person needs needs to go the next line. And now that's when the trouble starts. Where am I going to be able to position this person to access uh, assessments which are outside the scope of general practice? And, you know, when when that access is made more difficult because of the access, the lack of beds, outpatient appointments. I mean, you know, you apply for an outpatient appointment for somebody with their hip and you're told yeah, you'll be seen in 147 weeks. Uh, you know, you just, you just shake your head. Where do you go? And you know that this is going to get worse and worse. And by and large, most of these people are elderly people and they're facing into possibly years of disability and pain. And th- that puts a huge strain on general practice because there's only so much you can do in that regard. And you're now going to be faced with having to give them medications which are going to make them ill because you have no options. And that's the biggest, that's the biggest challenge. So, you know, beds have been cut out, stripped out of the service for a long number of years. They have to go back because unless that actually happens, none of this is going to work, no matter what we do. Y- yes, more can be done in the community, but... If a patient needs admission to hospital, they are now outside the scope of general practice. They have to get their assessments and treatment within a, either a hospital bed, a day bed, a daycare bed, or a hospital bed. And until that is redressed, I think we're going to we're going to be speaking this over and over again. Speaking of access, same day access to general practice has been a key feature of the service in Ireland for many many years, but the that is now something that is changing and is in danger going forward given the staffing difficulties. So again, is that something that concerns you? Same day access has been a problem. I suppose, certainly from my perspective, if a patient rings up and they need to be seen, they need to be seen and they're going to be seen. You know, if perhaps you ring up for something that is non-acute, that could wait a week or or two or three days, well, I mean, it's not, uh, you know, inappropriate that they would that wait that two or three weeks. If somebody has an acute illness that has to be seen there and then, by and large, most GPs will 
look after those patients and they should look after those patients. I think perhaps we need to be a little bit more nuanced about saying to people, do you know what, I think that particular problem you have could wait until Tuesday or Wednesday or Thursday. They don't all have to be seen on Monday because by and large, they don't all have to be seen on Monday. And I think any GP who, if they look back on a particular day and the patients, they could probably take out half a dozen to a dozen patients that could easily have been seen the following week or more. So unless you actually do that yourself, you are going to create a problem for yourself. And I think you do have to be more nuanced in that that regard. But certainly it it is a problem and capacity is a problem because people tend to consult more and more. And they have been consulting more and more, you know. What are your thoughts on the government's new slaughter care policy, a 10-year plan for the health service, which says that it's going to create equal opportunities for patients to access all services? I think it's well-intentioned. But certainly at this point in time, I don't see that they have the resources to put in place what they would like to do. If they were able to put the resources in place, I think it would be an ideal world. But I certainly don't see that happening any day soon. It does tend to have a more hospital-based bent, and that tends to fly in the face of all advice that more and more uh, services should be dealt with and de- in general practice and have you know better outcomes. So I suppose from my perspective as a GP, I'd certainly like to see a shift towards general practice. That's what all the experts say should happen. And maybe in a revised slaunch of care, I'm sure this is a process which can be tweaked. It may direct it more towards general practice in the long run. We hear every day negative stories about our health service, but there are good things happening every day too that we don't hear about. Mm. Do you feel we should hear more about the good stories? And do you have a recent tale of good service that you'd like to tell us about? I suppose... (laughs) Doctors are a bit like the goalies in a football match. Yeah, you could make a hundred good saves, but it's the one you let in that you're, you're remembered for. And I think, you know, that's the, that is what is uh, unfortunately the case. Good news doesn't make news. It's always the bad news. As a GP, I'm always experiencing from patients the good stories they've come back. They said, God, you know, when I was in you know, Mullingar Hospital, I was dealt with and it was fantastic. And, you know, I really am pleased with it. Whereas through media, you just don't hear that. I had my own experience recently where my mother at Brainerd Hospital recently and she was ill coming in, quite ill. And what I was impressed was that when she was brought into the casualty, her assessment, her treatment, her direction as to where she's going in the hospital and her eventual discharge was starting within the couple of hours, the first few hours she was there. And I thought the system was working very, very well. There was different people doing different things as part of that. And as a system, I thought, this is working very well. And I actually put it up on Twitter because I thought, you know, you need to say good things when they happen because unfortunately we are in sort of wallowing in a an avalanche of negativity and that sort of negativity begets negativity so I think you need to call things when they are good I was happy to do that on that day and I noted that you retweeted (laughs) Speaking of Twitter you are active on that platform as are a lot of GPs in Ireland it's a very good way to get various messages across what have been your experiences of it? Well I'm a Luddite (laughs) a total Luddite and I've only come to Twitter in the last number of years and probably um, I wouldn't be in any way competent. I think it's a very useful way to get messages across. Yeah, I do enjoy it. Sometimes people forget that perhaps they're on a public forum and it, it almost sort of releases any 
inhibitions they have about saying sometimes things that are just horrendous, you know. So I think, you know, it's a good forum, but it has limitations. And I think people should remember this is a public forum. Anybody can see it, you know. So I I'm, I'm try to be as careful as I can, try to read it three or four times before I press that send. I think some people do need to be a little bit more careful about what they write on it. I've seen things that you wouldn't like to see repeated. Speaking of technology, there's a lot of talk about telemedicine and how it helps connect patients, particularly in rural areas, with more healthcare services. GPs have been quite slow to adopt this process because they feel that there's some dangers there that perhaps people don't think about. I don't think anybody particularly has an issue with the use of the technology. I mean, certainly, you know, to use technology to, especially in remote areas, I think where people perhaps have some reservations are where you're using telemedicine to replace the consultation. And I certainly feel that's where it can go wrong. Consultation is all about meeting the patient, you know, looking at maybe this sort of the nonverbal communication and examining them. You can't examine somebody through telemedicine. Okay, there's certain issues that you can use, dermatology, whatever, like that. But I mean, I, I remember a particular patient who used a telemedicine issue and uh, I remember the the note back I got was, this looks like an infective tonsillitis. I, I can assume probably someone was just showing a camera down their throat. I mean, that's not the way to examine somebody. And certainly I think anybody who would allow a child to be used, and I've, I've heard of children being allowed examined over telemedicine that's just reckless and I, I think so I don't think anybody minds the use of technology I think technology is absolutely appropriate but it's appropriate as an adjunct to examination where perhaps there's another medic there and perhaps they're communicating with another doctor or nurse on the other side but I think from just as, as a telemedicine per se replacing consultation I think there's huge dangers in it. And finally, for any young doctor considering rural general practice as their career, what would your advice be? I think what you should do is go around and visit general practices. Go and talk to them. I think, you know, talk to them because I think there's a lot of things being said without perhaps any real understanding what is. Go and, go and stay, stay a few days. Like most, most GPs will be doing that anyway as part of their training but I think you know even after go and talk to people let them give you the honest appraisal of where they're at I have to say yeah I'm I'm very happy to be in general practice I wouldn't change it and I would recommend it but I think you know it's not for everybody and I think you need to be absolutely sure that that is what you want and the best way is to actually find out from people on the ground that brings us to the end of this episode of Living Medicine. My name is Priscilla Lynch and I want to thank our guest, Dr. Podrick McGarry, for spending time with us and to each of you for listening. Living Medicine will be back soon on your favourite podcast platform.